Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. makes our trek that much more interesting. You know, I can't get mad at them. At least they're marching for a good cause. I mean, we kind of need the Earth to live, and it's high time more people wake up to the reality of climate change. Careful there. You're starting to sound like you're about to join these protesters. If history has taught us anything, it's that the power lies with the people. Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the legendary show, Evita. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Don't cry for us, dear listeners. The truth is we never left you, and today we will continue to stay by your side as we take you through the epic and memorable show, Evita. The show that has been produced worldwide and headlines by several notable actors is a title that features songs and scenes that have been immortalized on the stage and screen. But before we can go all the way to Buenos Aires, we must first start outside the city and the beginning. Evita is a musical with music by Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyrics by Tim Rice. It concentrates on the life of Argentine political leader Eva Perón, the second wife of Argentine, uh, Argentina's president Juan Perón, The story follows Evita's early life, rise to power, charity work, and death. In 1972, Robert Stigwood proposed that Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice develop a new musical version of Peter Pan, but abandoned the project. Traveling late to a meal one night in 1973, Rice heard the end of a radio show about Eva Perón, which intrigued him. As a child stamp collector, he had been fascinated by her image on the Argentine stamps, but was unaware of her significance in Argentina's history. He began research and was introduced by a Cinema International Corporation executive to the Argentine film director Carlos Passini Hansen, who had produced the TV film 
Queen of Hearts, which had aired in the UK on the 24th of October, 1972. The executive also arranged for Rice to see the film at Thames Television, which he did at least 20 times, saying also that by that time I had seen Passini's superbly researched film. I was hooked. The more Rice investigated Ava Perone, going so far as to travel to Buenos Aires to research her life with many documents and contacts that Passini had supplied, the more fascinated he became by the woman. He even named his first daughter after her. Rice suggested the idea of a musical based on the subject to Lloyd Webber. But although the idea of writing a score including tangos, Pasadobles and similar Latin flavors intrigued him, Lloyd Webber ultimately rejected the idea. He decided instead to collaborate with Alan Eckborn on Jeeves, a traditional Rogers and Hart style musical based on the P.G. Wodehouse character, which proved to be a critical and commercial failure. After Jeeves, Lloyd Webber returned to Rice and they began developing Rice's proposed musical. The authors of the 1996 book Avita, The Real Life of Eva Perone, claimed the musical was based on Mary Main's biography, The Woman with the Whip, which was extremely critical of Eva Perone. Rice created Che to serve as both narrator and represent the voice of the lower working class, providing insight and criticism to Eva's character. When Harold Prince later became involved with the project, he insisted that the actors portraying Che should use Che Guevara as a role model. In the 1996 film adaptation, the character returned to his more anonymous roots. This was also the case to the 2006 London revival. Lloyd Webber and the conductor Anthony Bowles presented the musical at the second Sidmonton Fest before making the recording with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. When the recording was released, Lloyd Webber had sent a copy to the renowned American director Harold Prince and invited him to become involved with the eventual staging. Prince agreed, commenting, any opera that begins with a funeral can't be all bad. But he advised them that he could not take on any new commitments for the next two years. In the meantime, Lloyd Webber and Rice reworked several elements of the show. Some songs were dropped and some shortened, while others were introduced and some lyrics rewritten. Prince eventually confirmed that he would be ready to start rehearsals in early 1978. When he began working on the project in May, he suggested few changes other than deleting Che's rock number, The Ladies Got Potential. Prince requested a song he could stage to chart Perone's rise to power, and Rice and Lloyd Webber responded with the musical chairs number The Art of the Possible, during which military officers are eliminated until only Peron remains. Evita opened at the Prince Edward Theatre on the 21st of June, 1978, and closed on the 18th of February, 1986, after 3,176 performances. Elaine Page played Ava, with David Essex as Che and Joss Ackland as Perum, and Siobhan uh, McCarthy as Mistress. 
It was at this point the show was ready to take the journey across the sea. After debuting at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, with a subsequent engagement at the Orpheum Theater in San Francisco, the Broadway production opened at the Broadway Theater on September 25, 1979, and closed on June 26, 1983, after 1,567 performances and 17 previews. Patti Lapone starred as Eva, with Mandy Patinkin as Che, Bob Gunton as Perron, Mark Sayers as Magaldi, and Jane Oringer as Perron's mistress. Harold Prince directed with choreography by Larry Fuller. Now for this episode, we will be primarily focusing on the Broadway revival in 2012. So this is the perfect time to meet the design team for that show. The book was by Tim Rice and music was by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Lyrics by Tim Rice and orchestrations by Andrew Lloyd Webber. The direction was by Michael Grandage. Choreography by Rob Ashford. Costume and scenic design, Christopher Oram. Lighting design, Neil Austin. Sound design, Mick Potter. Projection design, Zachary Borove. Wig and hair design, Richard Mobby. Makeup design, Jason Goldsbury. The show would arrive at the Marquee Theater on April 5th, 2012 and run for 337 shows until its closing performance on January 26th, 2013. That season, it would be nominated for three Tony Awards. So let's see what's new in Buenos Aires. On July 26, 1952, a crowd in Buenos Aires, Argentina Theater are watching a movie that is interrupted when, breaking, when news breaks of the death of the First Lady Eva Perón. Both the crowd and the nation go into a period of public mourning. Che, a member of the public, marvels at the spectacle and promises to show how Eva did nothing for years. In 1934, 15-year-old Eva Duarte lives in the province of Yunin and wants to seek a better life in Buenos Aires. Eva takes up with a tango singer-songwriter, Agustin Magaldi, after she meets him at one of his shows. Eva persuades Magaldi to take her with him to Buenos Aires, and though he is initially resistant, he eventually accepts. Upon her arrival in the city, Eva sings about her hopes and ambitions of glory as an actress. After her arrival, Eva is quick to leave Magaldi, and Che relates how Eva sleeps her way up the social ladder, becoming a model, a radio star, and actress. He then tells of both a right-wing coup in 1943 and Eva's success, implying that Argentine politics and Eva's career may soon coincide. Che also makes a point to introduce the figure of Colonel Juan Domingo Perón, an ambitious military colonel who was making his way up the Argentine political ladder. In a game of musical chairs that represents the rise of political figures, Perón and other military figures compete for power and exhibit their political strategy. After a massive earthquake hits the town of San Juan, 
Perón organizes a charity concert at Luna Park to provide aid to the earthquake's victims. Eva attends and briefly reunites with Augustine Magaldi, who coldly shuns her for her past actions. Perón addresses the crowd with words of encouragement and leaps off the stage, meeting Eva as soon as he exits. Eva and Perón share a secret rendezvous following the charity concert, where Eva hints that she could help Perón rise to power. Eva dismisses Perón's mistress, who ponders the rejection. Upon moving in with Perón, Eva is introduced to high society, only to be met with disdain from the upper classes and the Argentine army. In 1946, after launching his presidential bid, Perón discusses his chances of winning the election with Eva. After reassuring him of their chances of winning, Eva organizes rallies for the descomisados and gives them hope for a better future, while Perón and his allies plot to dispose of anyone who stands in their way. During the period between Act 1 and Act 2, Eva and Perón are married, a fact merely alluded to in the Casa Rosada balcony scene at the start of Act 2. Perón is elected president in a sweeping victory in 1946. He stands on the balcony of the Casa Rosada, addressing his descamisados, the shirtless ones. Eva speaks from the balcony of the presidential palace to her adoring supporters, where she reveals that despite her initial goal of achieving fame and glory, she has found her true calling to be the people of her country. Che analyzes the price of fame as Eva dances at the inaugural ball with Perón, now president-elect. Eva insists on a glamorous image to impress the people of Argentina and promote Peronism. She prepares to tour Europe as she is dressed for success by her fashion consultants. Her famous 1946 tour meets mixed results. Spaniards adore her, but the Italians liken her husband to Benito Mussolini. France is impressed, and the English snub her by inviting her to a country estate rather than Buckingham Palace. Eva affirms her disdain for the upper class, while Che asks her to start helping those in need, as she made a promise. Eva begins the Eva Peron Foundation to direct her charity work. Che describes Eva's controvertible charitable work and possible money laundering. Eva appears at a church to take the sacrament in front of her adoring supporters, but passes out suddenly, and while unconscious, appears to have a dream that reflects upon the conflicting views in her life. In her dream, she and Che heatedly debate her actions. Che accuses Evita of using the Argentine people for her own ends, while Eva cynically replies that there is no glory in trying to solve the world's problems from the sidelines. At the end of the argument, Eva finally admits to herself and Che that she is dying and can't go on for much longer. Che points out the disastrous results of Perón's policies on Argentina. Its treasury is bankrupt, its once thriving meat Beef industry is under-rationing, and the press and other critics of the regime are muzzled. Perón's generals finally get sick of Eva's meddling and demand that Perón force her to leave politics. 
However, Perone objects and claims that if it weren't for her, they would never have achieved as much as they have. But he also concedes that she won't be able to keep working for long as she will soon succumb to her cancer. Even so, Eva is determined to run for vice president, and Perone fears that the military will stage a coup if she runs, and that Eva's health is too delicate for any stressful work. But Eva insists that she can continue despite her failing health. Realizing she's about to die, Eva renounces her pursuit of the vice presidency and swears her eternal love to the people of Argentina. Eva's numerous achievements flash before her eyes before she dies, and she asks for forgiveness, contemplating her choice of fame instead of long reign. Evita dies, and embalmers preserve her body forever. Chain notes a monument was to be set to be built for Evita, but says only the pedestal was completed, and Evita's body disappeared for 17 years. The, the end. end. discuss the parts of the show that we liked or, or maybe we thought could be better but before we do that can we just take a moment real fast do you realize what this is this is our, our 50th, 50th episode. episode 50 episodes 50, 50. I feel like Molly Shannon right now I'm 50 you know <laughs> 50 episodes we have come this far I mean you know we've, we have over a hundred pieces of, of content on the podcast itself, but the the, the, main the bedrock, episode. the yeah. main thing, our little baby. Little baby. <laughs> our foundation. Fifty. This is our fiftieth. Wow. High five. Yeah. Boom. We did it. <laughs> we what did a that. show to, to do it, Evita. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I feel like maybe I should go stand, you know, in the backyard right now and just sing out to the neighbors. Sing to the tulips. Sing, yeah, to the to the magnolia trees. Yes. What else can I say? There's nothing left to say. Doodly 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 doodly. <laughs> Don't cry for me, Argentina. I mean, listen. What S- theater? See how many people like lean out their windows with with kerchiefs and that. Kerchiefs. Uh, kerchiefs. Sorry. Kerchiefs. Kerchiefs. Don't. Listen, I mean, what, 50 episodes and you're making fun of me? Keep it up. What uh, <laughs> What theater person in their right mind hasn't just had their Eva Perón moment? Can I just say one of the best memes I saw, and I think it came out of the um, during the pandemic, was, was a map of the world. And Argentina was in red. And it just basically the key was like, you know, the red. Countries that are allowed to cry, or are not allowed to cry for me. Great. Countries that are allowed to cry for me. And I was just like, if you did it, like, I just laughed so hard at that. And I was like, I know I'm a musical theater nerd, but this is just that tongue-in-cheek, sheer brilliance. Someone had way too much time in their hand, of course. But anyway, happy 50th. We did it. Happy 50th. It's our silver anniversary. 
I, you know, I don't know what happens when you get to like 150 and 200. I don't know what that, those become, but here we are. Anyway, back to Evita, because I'm sure she wants to be the focus. Let's discuss the show. I really enjoyed the show. I did. Um, I liked the story. I liked the rise and the fall of a tragic and flawed but relatable character. You know, I love the music. And I don't always say that about Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. I'm like, yes, the music is beautiful and it's memorable. But like this show, I was like, wow. Like, I really love the music. Well, and that's the thing. I think of all the Andrew Lloyd Webber stuff, um, this is also one of my favorites. Yeah. I mean, Phantom aside, because Phantom's its own thing. Phantom's it's, uh, is an iconic thing, yeah. But this this is one that, like, as I was hearing it, I was like, yes! Like, There's just so many themes, and it's written like a, like a, a symphony. A, well, it's like a mix between an opera, a film, and a musical. Yeah. Yeah, it's just got a brilliant score. And I felt like the show itself, it just felt larger than life. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole production felt just larger than life. Evita Peron feels larger than life. Uh, She was larger than life. And and speaking of Evita Peron herself, I love the historical element. I I always love when a show has that historical tie to it, um, Mm -hmm. even if it is a little embellished. Well, that's where I think that it's interesting um, that if the kind of what we talked about, that the show. The, the musical Evita kind of lives on more than the memory of Eva Perón herself. Um, and I, need, I know that there's a lot of controversy between her and what she stood for and what she did. Um, but some of the highlights I just want to kind of um, make known is she is the reason why women have the right to vote in Argentina. Um, she is the one who pushed for her husband, the president, Juan Perón to sign the bill and after he signed the bill um, granting women the right to vote he handed it to her symbolizing that this is yours this is women's this is your you know especially at a well I mean yes at the time that that was all going down I was like yeah and it was like in the 60s no no it was not in the 60s you know but if you think it wasn't long after women got the right to vote here in America it was uh, 40 something 1940-something? 1940-something. I mean, okay, so that's still about 20 years after they got the right to vote here. Yeah, like, think about how, like, women uh, at this time, you know, just came, like, coming out of World War II, where women were running the factories, um, you know, these, women were strong, and, and the women of Argentina finally got the right to have their voices heard politically, um... So there's that. And then the other thing I just wanted to kind of note on before we go into the show um, is this idea of the descamisados. Descamisados, the shirtless Uh, ones. Yes, the shirtless ones. So I just was, you know me, I'm a little bit of a nerd. And I wanted to look into a little bit more of that um, idea of what they were. Um, and They were the common folk. So they, they were, were the, the co- farmers, the poor, the so butchers. They were, the... Um, they were inspired by uh, Victor Hugo's characters of Les Mis um, to rise up against, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, yes. 
Yes. And so I just think it's. I mean, it's interesting if you if you remember, like in in Evita the musical. If you think about it, the the descamisados in the musical very much reflect the common people from Les Mis, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got the higher class, you know, the one that's the chorus girl hasn't learned the lines, you know, all that. Yeah, they look like these high yuppie whatever, especially at the wedding scene. You definitely see that class split. It's it's European. Uh, colonialism influence right there, and 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 what happens in one place will follow suit elsewhere. If yes. there's an uprising in one place, it will continue for another. Right. America got its independence from England in 1776, well, and other countries in the monarch did the same thing. Well, and I feel like um, maybe it's just because I'm born and raised in America, but I tend to think that like. The world isn't very connected. Like, I tend to forget about the whole, like, like just how connected all other countries are to everywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. And so to know that this was happening in Argentina in the 40s, um, and then connecting that to what was happening everywhere else, it just, it's fascinating there, to there me. Was a, there was a slightly bigger thing happening in the 40s, just... Slightly. slightly bigger, you know, on the other hemisphere. Right, but if you're if you're looking at kind of um, society as a whole, how it was progressing, and this is where we started to get these ideas of dictatorships, fascist, fascism, communism, um, and just kind of how it had spread and how other countries were interpreting it. Because in America, we tend to get that, you know, that zoom scope of, American democracy, blah, blah, blah. It's the only thing that matters. And it's like, well, there was a lot of things happening politically all over the world um, with this exchange of ideas and with travel becoming easier and easier. So it's just, I find it fascinating. But I could go into the historical side of the whole thing, but I really think we should focus on the musical. Yeah, it's our 50th episode of Stage Whisper. We're going to go back to the stage. Exactly. Because, I mean, they really are different because it is a... It is a fantasized it version. It is a caricature version of Eva Peron. It's also kind of like a satirization as well. It, exactly. Um, and so I want to break down the elements here. I want to start with the set. And I want to say it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. And it was huge. This is the other thing. Um, if you Google this set, make sure you put in Evita 2013 Broadway. 2012. Well, sorry, it closed in 2013, but um, and you just look at it. It is so huge. It's so tall. The, the set occupied the entire marquee stage. Yeah. And it was enormous. One of the things I remember the most and that just stick with me is I loved the enormous windows that they had for that tango scene between Ava and Shay towards the end. Mm-hmm. And I'll get into the lighting later. But I just remember those enormous, tall windows. Uh, another scene I remember with the brilliant set was when Ava's throwing out the mistress for another suitcase, another hall. Mm-hmm. Um, the I don't know what you call them, but like the pathways, elevated stone pathways up above, yeah. like the balconies or whatever, up above. 
a, but not the balcony, you know. But no, not the the iconic balcony. Like but the, the walkways, but like she's looking down, you know. You could mm-hmm. go now. Your your job is done. Um, mm-hmm. and you've got these gorgeous archways and pillars, and she sings. So what happens now? You know, and there's it's like a courtyard, mm-hmm. and it was just gorgeous. But it was so huge. It was like life size. It felt like I was in a villa. Like oh, it felt like you were in a palace. You yeah, felt like, like you were in a palace. It was a, it was an Argentinian like villa palace, like yeah. the most highest upscale with like influences from not only you know like Spain and all this, but it just is gorgeous. The architecture that was shown during the show, you know, was brilliant. While we were in the common like town square with the fountain and the wood panels, the, the not the wood panels, but the shutters and that to. The Casa Rosada, um, with the beautiful palatial columns and such. I mean, it was beautiful. Um, of course, the balcony scene, the iconic balcony scene, where like that balcony kind of extended. We have the Argentinian flag draped, and she's out there leading her, extending her arms out to the people. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't get over that scene, but I'm going to talk about it later. The other one I want to just mention, and I'm mentioning it here. Because of, maybe it's the silhouette or maybe it's the picture, but it's the number, you know, um, and the money kept coming in. Mm-hmm. So she's, it's when she sets up her foundation and they have mm-hmm. all these letters and they're passing all these letters in, you know, and at the end and they performed at the Tonys and, and she has all these letters and they're money, 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 da, 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 da. And they finish and she throws all these letters in the air and she and they hold this pose and she's being hoisted up and she throws these letters in the air and the letters come down beautifully like it's raining. Now, was, were they letters or were they money? It was letters because, remember, it's their dreams. That's right, that's right. They they're were writing their them. dreams on their letter and they send it to Ava Peron. And so that's what she has is is these dreams of theirs. And she throws them in the air, their hopes and dreams, and they come down. And the reason why I love that image is these people are raising her up. She has her hopes and dreams. But where do they ultimately land? On the ground. Mm-hmm. Which is where most of them actually, they didn't take off. But that image of those letters going up and falling down as these this cast is holding it with just everything. It was this beautiful image. It's like seared in my mind. And I thought, what a, I mean, just snap that picture. That is a gorgeous, and so I wanted to mention that the set, I, I didn't know where else to kind of put it. I was like, it's not, it's just an overall just image mm-hmm. that locks in there. And I think one of the reasons that it, it, it lasts in there. I think that helps lend that silhouette. Leads us to our next one, which is the costume, because she was in her military uniform. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the costumes in the show were beautiful. Oh, yes. I mean, that white gown that she wears during Don't Cry For Me Argentina is iconic, beautiful. With the flowy. I mean, it flowed and then it had this gorgeous sleeve. I, I, it wasn't tight, but no, it There had... wasn't any sleeve here. It was... Um, I thought, sleeveless. There was, I, thought it, uh, I thought there was like a puffy sleeve or something. Is what I'm remembering. Maybe I might be thinking of Patty Lapone now. I think you might be thinking of Patty. And there's no shame in thinking of Patty. I mean, because <laughs> Patty. Um, I love the tailored look on, on all the, especially her. I mean, obviously she would have tailored look. Just those 
um, brilliant. The 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 silhouette. Yes, well, it was that very 1940s classic silhouette. Yes. Um, also, you had, a, I mean, it was such so brilliantly done of these, like, French-inspired, um, like, outfits for yes. when she was doing the Rainbow Tour. Yes. Um, while everyone else was kind of in, like, you know, yes. simple, like, plain... Um, non-expensive clothing and it really just showed that difference where she's continuing to climb the ladder and really I'm a person of the people but it's that separation it's it's that hard separation of how can you be one of us when you look at the way you're dressing look at the way you're acting look at mm-hmm. um, and, and and even back to those military uniforms you know those those green um, military uniform um, on all the men obviously it's a military uniform, but that that particular shade of green was really impressive. Mm-hmm. It, I, I, I don't know why, but the, the name Gorilla Green comes to mind. I don't know why. Don't ask me why. But the way her uniform was cut, even in a military uniform, it still has that silhouette. Mm-hmm. And I, that was one thing that I remember noting because I'm like, I wonder if that really is the case. Did they really? And, and here's the thing. In real life, I bet they did. I bet they did back then. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that like today, I, I don't know if our, our women in service have a a, a, a a uniform that fits their silhouette. They do have dress, they're, they're, uh, they're, are they called dress uniforms or their uh, officer's uniforms? They're, they're nice ones that they wear for. Right, um, right, right. If they go to the White House or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think they still do, but I. Don't know if women have to. I know there was a time where women had to have the skirts, but I don't know if they do anymore. But you, you know what yeah. I'm saying, like that that silhouette, and I'm like, I believe that they they custom made that uniform to make you have that silhouette, mm-hmm. to make that feminine look. Mm-hmm. You know, especially back then. And can we real quick? Can we talk about while we're talking about? Can we talk about the hair? Yes. For a second. So she starts off with this. Loose, shoulder-like, curly brown hair that is just tossed around, and it's very like, free. The way very she's loving. doing it, it's like an herbal essence commercial, you know. And we go into this tight blonde bun, mm-hmm. you know, the iconic blonde bun. That mm. mm-hmm. uh, I still have no idea why we go to the blonde bun. Um, I believe the uh, I believe Evita. Um, really did go to a bottle blonde. Um, Probably when she became like a TV actress or something, I would guess. Yes, that's what I'm I thinking. Guess, I don't think there wasn't a lot of TV at that time, now that I think about it. But I believe when she became a model and whatnot, I would guess. Yeah. But I, it it's the iconic look, you know what I mean? And to me, that was one of the first signs of the separation of classes. You know, when she was starting to move up the ladder. What was the first big change for her? The, the disconnect from her roots. Literally a disconnect from her roots. She dyed her hair. Mm-hmm. And, and she pulled it back. And, and she, she made it tight. She, um, I mean, I think it comes from a combination of things. Because at that point in her life, she wanted power. And the only way to get power was to present yourself as powerful. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you have to do that is contain those curls and um, pull everything tight and show that you mean business. 
Um, yeah. So yeah. That it, it's just such a brilliant look, and I, I can't get over the iconicness of it. I think we're leaving out one person who I want to talk about in the costume man, and that's Che. Mm-hmm. And, the, and and the reason why is you know they after the uh, Broadway production where they made it like Che Guevara, mm-hmm. they took him back to just be like an anonymous common person, just someone in the crowd. Yeah. What I loved about Ricky Martin's costume was he was like a winding down tuxedo look. It was like white t-shirt, but he's in these black pants with suspenders. He looked like he had just come home from the fanciest party. And now he was just like, I'm, I'm cutting loose. And he's telling us the story about what had happened at the party. And it really just emphasized that narrator role. Mm-hmm. The first time we see him and he looks like that and he comes on with, oh, what a story. Oh, what a, da, you know. And... Um, it does. He, he, he's just like that guy that appears and he's like, you really want to know what happened at the party? You really want to, you want to know the tea, you know? And mm-hmm. that's his look. And I'm like, actually, I really kind of like this. You were the fly on the wall. You were the guy that was there. Mm-hmm. You're the man in, in the know. And that look makes you look, he can split the two worlds where these nice pants with suspenders makes it look like he was at this fancy party with these upper class people, but the way he up top, and also the way he speaks, I'll say, you can totally be with the descamisados. Mm-hmm. You can, you're a man of both worlds. Mm-hmm. So I love that costume choice. Yeah, no, that. that was a very brilliant choice there. Um, and I think we would be remiss if we didn't get into the lighting for this. Lighting was oh. brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I love that everything had that subtle haze to it that just put together that temperature. You know what I mean? Like that it was kind of hot mm-hmm. um, and that there were high risks and that you were in the the, the boys' locker room kind of feel like uh, okay no 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 like i didn't like the gentleman's club like the like the officer's club when they're doing the art of the possible i mean just the whole like it's the the feeling that the light through the haze gave okay it was very much like the room where it happens kind of feel okay but not like a hamilton reference see i thought the light the lighting really helped to enhance the overall energy of both the music and the choreography mhm you know um, to me the music, it, it was the aural excitement. The choreography was the physical, the touch excitement. And then the lighting was the eye excitement. All we needed to do was be able to taste and smell it, and we had hit all five sentences, you know. Mm-hmm. I just, every time I think back to the show, I just think of the pillars of light coming through to shine, like the silhouettes, like it. You know what I mean? Like when you see a light coming across stage. Okay, so that leads me to the moment I wanted to talk about earlier. One of my favorite moments is when uh, Che and Ava are dancing during the tango. Remember mm-hmm. the big windows I was talking about? Mm-hmm. And they were all beautiful. The light that shines through it, it's that Grand Central Station image. So the light shines through it, but they have a gobo that gives it that... Um, Elongated feel? Well, it's, it's, a, it's like a projected thing of like the light shining through a window pane. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, I, there is light coming through the window, but the, they've also focused the light from above to give us, as you're looking down at the stage, we see 
the actual window and it stretched out. And I was like, this is so cool. And because like you mentioned the haze, you see the light streaming through. Like I said, like that famous pi- picture yeah. of the light streaming through the windows at Grand Central. And I was like, what a cool lighting effect. And by doing that and having kind of this empty stage with Che and Ava dancing and that lighting effect, it felt even bigger. Well, and the whole thing really just made it feel like a memory rather than a solid place. Yes, it was and- in that limbo. It was mm-hmm. it was in no time, no space, it, and, and which was great. Because mm-hmm. that's going to lead me to direction later. But, um, yeah, and I just thought the use, the ability to use just different shades of bright colors to address um, the different times, you know, whether it was the, uh, uh, um, the like, um, I, I'm, I'm mixing thoughts, sorry. The, the use of, of shadows and projections, like in the town square was the other one mm-hmm. that I remember when they're doing What's New Buenos Aires and she's still young. Um, I remember the lighting coming through the archways and whatnot to show the, the like, I don't know, like trees or something like that. It felt, mm-hmm. it felt more congested. Yes. Um, but the other thought that I was mixing up with was I liked the backlighting that was behind the giant set pieces that created these angelic moments, particularly the opening and the finale, you know, these mm-hmm. like bright back, white light or whatever. And then of course that iconic, don't cry for me, Argentina. If they did not recreate Ms. Patti LaBone, mm-hmm. but it's just, you knew what was coming. And what I, what I loved is it was bright and it focused so your eye was drawn right to Evita but you see all the desk camisadas down below and they're all in shadow though but then you mm-hmm. see them swaying and they're swaying and then they all lift up their kerchiefs that are white mm-hmm. and that's all you see is these white kerchiefs waving among these shadows and I'm like that lighting that mm-hmm. and and to me that created that image like we've talked about how she's climbed up you know it's climbing the ladders the separation of the two it's dirty down below and it's mm-hmm. it was it's art it's brilliance it's beautiful it was it was everything we wanted okay I want to talk about the direction I'm, I'm going <laughs> to go on eight different tangents so I really felt that all the ideas and the messages the director was trying to convey really shown through in this production. Mm-hmm. They weren't trying to reinvent the wheel. Um, in 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 like hindsight, looking at it, this reminded me a lot of a lot of other revivals that have been done of successful shows. It's the allure is that oh, it's a re- recognizable successful show. They hold to that standard, so you can only tweak it so far because you still have to give the audience what they're expecting. Mm-hmm. But you still want to make it new. I mean, Harold Prince directed this. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you live up to that? And I think that the director did a really great job of, I'm going to tell you the story. I'm going to use these the new technology we have in the theater, as well as new ideas with choreography and whatnot. And just we're gonna tweak a couple things to create maybe this new aha. Like one thing I loved was I felt 
My interpretation was that Che was not only the voice of the common people, and not only was the narrator, but he also felt a little bit like Ava's conscience. Mm-hmm. Always commenting, always kind of having a conversation with her throughout the show. And having that illusion really helped show the scales that right. existed with Ava's decisions and actions. And right, that. because she wasn't a totally awful person. She wasn't a totally good person. And that's a real human right there. Mm-hmm. Because we all have these, um, you know, we both have good and bad moments. But it made the interaction between the two make a little bit more sense. Because it, at, at first, when we saw it the first time, I was kind of like, hang on. Why is he talking to her that way if he's so common how is he able to speak to her in such a way i don't understand when we're in the show like in the scene or when we're out of the scene like this doesn't make sense and then when i've had time to sit and stew on it i went mm-hmm. well maybe that's an illusion but whose illusion is it is it the illusion is it the memory of che or is it the memory of Vita? and it's that's just... the part that i found really interesting because i think in uh, in its original conception, it was this idea of Che's commentary on her life. And in this one, it could be the other way around. Exactly. It's Evita's commentary on herself and moments where she shined and moments where she felt like she she looked back and realized she sold out. And, you know, and I, I liked that interpretation just a little bit more because it made it make yes. sense to me. Because yes. I remember seeing this and listening to this. And at first I was like, I don't know what this is about. Is she good? Am I supposed to like her? Who am I Who am I supposed to like and who am I not supposed to like? So that leads me to the other thing I was going to point out about the direction. The overbearing and, dare I uh, say, overwhelming set. Um, this huge looming set. But then you got this common clothing among the bulk of the cast. But then you've got this really bright, focused lighting, harsh lighting, right? Mm-hmm. It really helped to convey this message of smoke and mirrors from a higher power. Mm-hmm. You know, we were, everybody was really led to believe that things were okay. We were lulled in a false sense of security. But as an audience, thanks to Che and Ava's relationship, we were able to look behind the curtain and see, you know, Perone's insecurities. And we were able to see the fact that the generals really didn't like Ava or have right, faith in Right, and Perone. that they really were trying to just get what they wanted without the regard of their people. Or see that Ava could be manipulative. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can see all that. You know, mm-hmm. and... And what I loved about it is it was it had this illusion of this is a good, bright, it's okay thing. But it was a little darker too. It made it that much more darker. And um, so the show, to me, this revival was actually darker than the original. Even though it was presenting an, uh, an overall lighter tone. Mm-hmm. Even though you, like, as you were watching, you were like, I feel like this is overall presenting lighter. In the back of your head, you're like, so why do I feel like it's actually darker? And that's why I was like, you feel small. Like, if you're looking at the set and everything, you feel smaller. And then when you realize what the show's about, it makes you feel even smaller as a person. An overbearing, a, a huge set, harsh lighting, and we're able to peek behind the curtain and actually see what's going on. Meanwhile, we're money, 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 money. What a fun song. Yay. You know, Uh 
Well, no, because we're bankrupt and we're living on rations now. Yeah. So, um, and as I was singing, you want to talk about some music? There's so much of this music I didn't realize I knew until I saw the show. And I was like, oh my God, I did know this one. And also, a large part of that is thanks to The Simpsons. Well, I'm I'm (laughs) glad you brought that up because in the research... I did mention how there's a whole episode, the pre- the president and her pearls. I think it is when Lisa becomes class, class president. president uh-huh. Is a episode spoofing this, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, no, no. But but you do know a lot of these songs because they have been um, immortalized in all their aspects of pop culture. They've been referenced and used in all sorts of other pop culture because I recognize a lot then all I thought I knew was um, Don't Cry For Me Argentina yeah that's all I thought I knew and then I was hearing other songs The Rainbow Tour I knew so much of the Rainbow Buenos Tour Buenos Aires and On This Night of a Thousand Stars I was like hold on a minute you know um, I just didn't realize I didn't make the connection so yeah these songs stuck with you long after you left the theater I, I mean even before then, you even got there yeah. too uh, Eleanor Rogers' performance of don't cry for me, Argentina. Really, just it moved you. It, what I like, and and see, this is something that I don't think gets talked about a lot. There are iconic performances in the history of Broadway, and when those shows and performances get revived, I think audiences and critics go back wanting a recreation of those original performances, and you gotta expect something new. So, for instance. I'm alluding to Funny Girl right now. Everybody's wanting Beanie Feldstein to do Barbara Streisand. No, Barbara Streisand does Barbara Streisand and Beanie does Beanie. And they're both fantastic. Stop wanting them to be the same. Mm-hmm. And the same thing here. I felt like everybody at first wanted Elena to be Patti Lapone mm-hmm. in doing it. And I said, no. Patti Lapone is Patti Lapone and Elena's Elena. And they both did it fantastically. <laughs> Let them be their own let them be their own because they do it two different ways and that is okay to exist mm-hmm. we can and, and you can you can s- have multiple artists who do a fantastic job with the same song yeah there's a there's that tiktok that goes around that shows all the different alpha buzz how they finish defying gravity mm-hmm. i did Manzel originated it but yet there's like 12 different ways that they've ended that song since then which one's the best it doesn't matter it's mm-hmm. it's still they're all good so well, just while we're on the subject of, sorry to interrupt, but on Elena Rogers' performance, she was the first Evita or Eva Peron on Broadway to actually be Argentinian. Argentinian. Argent- yes, and that was a big deal. And so I just think of what it must have meant for her character development to play such a iconic character from her home. Yes. And because that means so many different things to her than it ever did to Patty. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so she brings a whole nother layer to her performance yeah. because of that. And I think that that is a large part as to why she was able to give such a fantastic performance because it meant something different to her than it did to us. And I don't think, and I don't speak on behalf of Patty Lapone by no, any means, never. but I don't think that Patty was wishing her to fail or anything. I think Patti Lapone, if anything, wanted her to succeed and wanted her to really nail the hell out of that song, you know, and just, oh. Because great artists want other artists to succeed. And I'm, that's what burns me up, just tears me up when I hear people be like, oh, so-and-so's not great. Oh, and so they didn't do it. No, did they perform the part well? Don't compare them. 
Did they perform the part well? Mm-hmm. If they did the part well, they did great. Well, and that's mm-hmm. one of the best things about theater as an art form because, you know, there is only one Van Gogh and there's only going to be one Van Gogh. But you have these pieces that have to have life, breathe, breath, Breath into them. Breath into them. You know what? Uh, I know what you're saying. <laughs> you know, these 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 things have to have life, you know, given to them based on something. And so it leads itself to having many interpretations, well, not just one. Yeah, the, the first time it's done or the second or the third or whatever is not the end-all be-all. Life, theater is alive. It's a living thing. It will continue to re- recreate itself and, and, and go on. Elaine Stritch performed The Ladies Who Lunch brilliantly. I mean, that woman is great. The fact that she would keep saying everybody rise until everybody was up on their feet, amazing. But Patti Lapone right now, I'm also living for that. They perform it two different ways, mm-hmm. and they're both brilliant. I, mm-hmm. I would sit there and listen to them both. I mean, even uh, that's something that being at the Music Man has taught me, um, because... I'm there for every single performance. No. Watching the way that the show ebbs and flows also, you know. Based on the audience, too. Based on audiences, mm-hmm. based on, you know, other elements. And so the fact that we have such an art form that can have so many variables put into it. So much it, life to it. And that what you see on one night is going to be different than what someone else sees. Yeah. And so yep. it's just it's just this beautiful thing, and you you know it's it's okay to like we can talk about these different artists, but at the end of the day, we shouldn't be holding them to the standard of another person. No. I mean, there are certain things, certain marks you have to hit, but you're right. Like Eleanor Rogers is never gonna be Patti Lapone. She never was gonna be Patti Lapone. She never could be Patti Lapone, but she could be Elena Rogers, and Patti Lapone couldn't be Elena Rogers. Yeah, and and. That, that Like I said, that scene where she sings Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, and then everyone brings up their kerchiefs, and they wave it, and they're cheering for Perón. It was so beautiful and gripping. The music just had so much life, and it makes you want to move and dance and feel. Like, I just... It, it was everything. It felt... And, and we've mentioned this before. Music on Broadway is live. Mm-hmm. Unless... It's, I mean, the, the one exception, honestly, is plays. Plays tend to have recorded music. But musicals, musicals, it's all live. To hear that sound from, like you had mentioned, a symphony, basically, is incredible. Mm-hmm. It really, ugh. Um, Also, one thing with just music I want to say really fast is this is the first time I've, I got to hear Michael Severus live. Oh. Oh, my God. If you ever get to hear Michael Severus His live. voice just, he makes it look effortless. Yeah. He makes it sound effortless. But it's so... He's got that Ugh. velvety tone that just... Mm-hmm. Oh, I could listen to it for days. Mm-hmm. He's amazing. Um, I want to mention one last thing in the, the breakdown here, which is choreography. It is a musical. A musical. Wrong show. And I thought the choreography was absolutely amazing. From tango to salsa to pop to these beautiful expressive numbers with the soldiers and chairs and stuff. I mean... It, it embodied, I, I've already said this like three times, it, it enhanced and embodied the music and the lights and the words. It just really, it physicalized it. It gave words 
to what was trying to be said. But you know what I mean? If that makes any mm-hmm. sense, you know, mm-hmm. it, it really helped. I, we always have that expression, why are you singing? Because there's no way, there are no words to express how you feel. Well, that also goes along with dance. Why are you dancing? Why are you moving? And I felt like this was a great example of, you know, anytime people were moving or dancing, not only were they dancing because they had, they just didn't have any words to express how they felt, but also the way they were dancing, the movements they were doing made complete sense as to what they were trying to say. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so it, it, added another dimension to the whole experience. This was like a 60 experience, you know? The show has had several notable performers, including Elena Rogers, Michael Severus, Ricky Martin, Elaine Page, Max Von Essen, Mandy Patinkin, and Patti LaPone. Now let's talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. I mean, for one thing, it's a classic as far as musicals go. Yes. And and along with that, it created iconic songs for the musical theater tomes. Yes. You know, they're, they're just... We mentioned there's so many songs from the show that people know, but I think there's just some... There's a handful of iconic songs that just... You know, if there was a national archive of musical theater... I mean, obviously, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina is going to be in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, 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 this was another hit for the duo of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. Mm-hmm. This was another huge hit for Hal Prince. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was another continuation of the British invasion at that time. That's right. You know, um, this is a time when a lot of uh, a lot of shows were coming from the West End. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I think... Cats hadn't arrived yet. So we've got this, Phantom's on its way, Joseph, Jesus Christ Superstar, Les Mis, Miss Saigon. Mm-hmm. Here, here comes the British invasion, and that pipeline will continue to go until this day. Um, and I'm sorry, I think it is worth noting, this would be the first Tony Award for Patti LuPone. Not her last, but the first one she would win. Not her first nomination, her first win. Her mm-hmm. first Tony win um, for the role of Ava Perone, a well-deserved win. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think that to to me that that is the theatrical impact that this show has left. I mean, I'm sure there's more. Oh yeah, but I mean, really, what it comes down to is this show, based on its iconicness, if you can say that. I don't know if that's a word, but it's iconally. <laughs> But based on how iconic this show is, it forever has a place in theater. Like, as as a noteworthy show. Yes. As being a large part, not a large part, but like a important blip on the timeline of musical theater history. Yes. Because of the impact that the music has made and the content and... Just so much others about it that we could hit on forever, but I think at this point we've been hitting it pretty hard. <laughs> we should probably go on to the societal impact, which, yes. as I was racking my brain, actually, I thought it had more of a theatrical than societal impact. 
Yes. To me, I think the only societal impact I can come up with was this created this show created roles for Latinx performers. Mm-hmm. This was a show that I don't want to say it was created for, but but in the creation of the show, we now have a show that is for and can be be by basically Latinx performers. Well, if I that mean, makes sense, it this, does make sense. But what I one thing I do want to say is. At the time of its creation, even on its last revival, the amount of people who were cast that were from the Latin community was way smaller than it should have been. And that, and I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. That was ten years ago. Um, I think I'd like to look at who the original people were, but I mean, Ricky Martin as Che was a step in the right direction. Eleanor Rogers as Evita, step mm-hmm. in the right direction. I would be interested to see a revival now, what that would look like. Because I feel with the direction that the theater is going, you would see a completely Latinx Avita, well, and, and that the, would be amazing. Well, what I find interesting about the whole story of Avita is it is a very it's it's a uh, Latin American story. It is a Southern Latin American story, written by no one who is from Argentina. Oh yeah, well I mean. We could get in historical ties between Argentina and England, but right. yes, but I mean, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. It's just something interesting. And so what I would really love, and if we do have any listeners that are from the Latin community, or especially if you're from Argentina, I would love to hear what your thoughts and opinions are on this show and its impact, because it is it does live in that fantasy, historical fantasy area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just, I would be curious to hear what your thoughts and opinions are, because it probably is something very different than mine, and that's what I'm interested in. Well, I'd love to hear what tweaks you would maybe even do to a revival of uh, Avita. Like, if you were from, um, if, especially if you are from Argentina. So I would love to hear if there's any Argentinian listeners out there. Do you get the same experience, or what would you have different if you've seen this, or what would you do different? And what this show like means and represents to you, because yeah. it was one of the first... Um, like Latin type shows that was as popular as it is. And and closer to historically accurate. It wasn't a huge what's wrong I'm looking caricature, like a huge caricature, like something from the twenties where they were really mocking or something. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. It wasn't a uh uh Ricky Ricardo kind of Yes. Character. Yes, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't a stereotype. That's the word I was character. looking for. It wasn't a stereotype show. It actually was something that was real. So let's ask it, since we're kind of already asking it: is is this relevant? So I think there's a lot of important issues and messages discussed in the show, and a show about the rise of uh, a common person and ultimately her fall from grace is a story we can all relate and want to see, and a show about the rising up of people against an overbearing and tyrannical government is also one that we can all relate to and maybe want to see. But I worry, with the heated political climate we are in, this may not be the best time for it to come back to Broadway. Maybe hopefully in a year or two, because it has been 10 years, Mm -hmm. you know, a year or two, maybe it'll make a triumphant return. But in the meantime, I think it's a fantastic, it has a fantastic place in regional and collegiate theater. But I, I just think just for the next year or two, it's not, not, not here on Broadway. Mm-hmm. I think- Asterisk, 
and disgusting of a completely diverse, a completely POC production. That could be very good. Also directed by... A, yeah, no, 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 no. That, that's what I mean. Directed by someone from Argentina. No, no, that, that's what I mean by... Like, I mean, performed, designed, top to bottom, you know... That the, the, there are people like there are people of that ethnicity out there that that can be put together to put this show on. It's not like there's a lack of of Hispanic designers mm-hmm. or actors or anything like that. There's no lack of it. You just gotta you know give them the job. Mm-hmm. You know. So um, I also think that uh, it's just kind of interesting how and when. Um, Avita pops up in our um, consciousness mm-hmm. um, as people because it's a show that we all like know that it's there but like in getting ready for the show I didn't think about the show or remember any of it until we started talking about it and then I was mm-hmm. like oh Avita and so what are the implications of that you know what I mean and I think that has to do with some of the relevancy and maybe right now because of how much has happened as particularly in America, maybe we're not quite ready to look inward mm-hmm. like this. There are, I think there's other issues we need to look inward first, and then we can go and back. And then Yes, that's what it's said. Maybe a year or two. Exactly. to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we had the good fortune of seeing the show once back in 2012. And I think we ranted and raved and hooted and hollered about it how... It was one of my favorite at the, of the season. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, not only did we get to see Ricky Martin, Eleanor Roger, and Michael Severus, but did we mention we got to meet Ricky Martin, Eleanor Roger, and Michael Severus? <laughs> there is a picture... Of Ricky Martin looking at me and being like, hey. Well, and what I found fascinating is, like, this is one of the first times I ever experienced waiting at the stage door and people being like, who are we lining up for? Are we lining up for Ricky Martin? And, like, just strangers off the street. And it reminded me, because he might not have been, like, really, like, Ricky Martin might not be a large, like, name in my consciousness, but for other people across the world... He was. So he what was great about this was, this wasn't your first like A-list celebrity show. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had seen Daniel Radcliffe and How to Succeed in Yada Hoodie Hada. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was funny is nobody except us knew where the stage door to the marquee was because there was all that construction, remember? Mm-hmm. And so being the smart cookies that we were, we got out of the show, we knew exactly where to go. We were the first ones to the stage door. Meanwhile, everyone had no idea which way to the stage door. You know, it's, if you've ever been to the Marquee Theater, it, I mean, it can be confusing. It's on 45th, it's on 46th, I don't know, it's over on Broadway. We knew where it was, but finally as people like started showing up, people showed up. And then like as other shows nearby, like The Lion King got out, they started seeing who was there. Yeah, like they're like, let's all rush over there and see Ricky Martin. And I was like, okay, so Ricky Martin came out. Or Eleanor Roger came out first, then Ricky Martin came out, and after Ricky Martin came out, and it, to me this is the funniest thing. 
everybody left and Michael Severs comes out and there's like 10 of us left. And I'm like, guys, this is the man. This is the guy you want to meet though. Like He's Tony award winning, Tony nominated. This is the dude. This is, this is my man. And <laughs> if I remember right, if memory serves me right, the next year, or it be the year after, Maybe it's the year after, but his next show would be Fun Home, where uh-huh. he'd win another Tony Award. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I met you, <laughs> you know. And I, he he had a lovely conversation with me, like a 15-minute conversation. He was so nice. He was very sweet. And he talked to us, uh, I can't remember if it was at this show or if it was when we saw him in Fun Home, when he talked to us about his uh, wig dresser, who he gets written into his contract. That was Fun Home. So, but he he was so nice. He was amazing. Um, and it was amazing to meet him and learn, you know, he's from New Orleans and, and he's in a, in a jazz ensemble and that. It was fantastic. And one last fun fact for all of you playing our game out there. This show was the last show to be up on the Marriott Marquis Theater's Marquis on Broadway. Oh, yes, because... So af- that would be torn down during the construction. Now they only have the Marquis that's on 46th Street. So... You know, fun little fact there for y'all. Well, theater is back, and we hope you can join us at a show soon. We'll, we'll, we'll keep a seat open for you. You'll be able to catch Evita at a theater near you sometime soon, I hope. We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass. Information about our new backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Juanitos, Jesse Spillane, Gui Frog, and Billy Murray.